With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome once again. and Thank you for joining me. Uh, today is uh, June the 20th of 2016 and uh, first day of summer. And also there's a full moon out there for those that will be able to see it. Uh, first time that the summer solstice and a full moon has happened in close to 70 years. I think it was 1948, the uh, last time something of that uh, particular uh, solar uh, occursion happened. Well, as you know, uh, a lot has been going on, and, and it's, uh, you know, I, I would like to say I hope and pray that you all have a good summer. It's going to be a hot one, and uh, it's, it's just going to be one of uh, definitely trying times, and I just pray for those people that, uh, uh, that are suffering from that event that happened a week ago in Orlando. My heart's... Uh, my heart goes out to the family, and, and I just pray that the Lord just touches those that have suffered a loss, you know, just give them strength. And also the fires uh, going on in New Mexico and California, and the people that are suffering under the heat in Arizona and Nevada, as well as California, I just, I just offer a prayer to all of those. And Heavenly Father, I just, everything I know, I know that everything is in your hands and you know what's going on and you know our needs Heavenly Father and I just pray that you just reach out and just touch all those that need you dear Heavenly Father that call upon your name because you said that's what you would do that you would touch us and help us what no matter what situation we're in or 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 what's going on in our lives and for those that have been devastated with the loss of, of members through senseless killing, um, you know, Lord, I uh, just comfort them, Lord. Just just be with them and, and be with us as a nation, dear Heavenly Father. I just pray we need you. We need you so bad, you know, because of all the craziness going on out there. But you, your son, Jesus, said that toward the latter days things would get pretty ugly. And Lord, uh, if this is a preview of what's to come, I'm, I'm, I'm just thankful that I'm wrapped up in your arms and your love. And I just give you all the praise in your son Jesus' name. I thank you. And now, Lord, I just ask and pray that uh, you just bless these words that are read through this medium and that you just touch those hearts, dear Heavenly Father, that need to be touched in whatever way they need to be touched, whether they need to come to get to know who you are or whether they are just strengthening their faith in you. And I just thank you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's kind of appropriate, uh, this particular uh, session that we're going to go through, and it's called Your Father Knows What You Need. And once again, we're going through Know the Words of Jesus in 30 Days uh, by Guidepost uh, 
done by J. Stephan Lang. If you have an opportunity, and I'll uh, give you uh, the information. I keep saying that. I, can't, I think I said that the last time, and I failed to do it. But I will uh, put information uh, on how to receive a copy of this for yourself. Well, as I said, we're going to go through Your Father Knows What You Need. Prayer as it ought to be. At the heart of it today is Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer, emphasizing the need for penance and trust in the Heavenly Father and the importance of prayer not being done for show or for praise or self. And the memory verse for today is, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? And that's Luke chapter 18, verse 7. Jesus raised as a devout Jew took prayer to be a normal part of life, and the Gospels show him praying often. He saw God at his Father, and prayer was his way of maintaining frequent and intimate communication with the Father. He urged his disciples to do the same. As we work through this chapter on Jesus and prayer, we will be looking at circumstances Jesus made of the prayer habits of Jews in first century Palestine. As is so often true of the New Testament, we will see that spiritually speaking, things have not changed much in 2,000 years. The wrong ways and wrong motives for prayer that Jesus spoke of are still very much with us. The key term for today is Father. Central to Jesus' understanding of prayer is his belief in God as Father, who, who gladly gives his children what they truly need. Prayer is an act of personal communication with the Father, and it is to be frequent and persistent, but always guided by the principle, your will be done. Strictly for show. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And that's Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. In the time of Jesus, devout Jews had a habit of praying at set times per day the third, sixth, and ninth hour, nine o'clock, noon, and three p.m. No matter what they happened to be doing and in a standing position, what lay behind this practice was something good in itself, the desire to pause during the day and give thought of God. However, Jesus saw that this motivation had ceased to be important for many people. What had begun to matter was being observed at prayer. 
her in ancient times was almost never done silently, so naturally passerby would both hear and see the person at prayer. The shorey, the shorey uh, sort of hypocrites even made efforts to be in the public a spot as possible so that others would behold them praying. People who do so in public are not trying to focus the public's attention on God, but on themselves. People who are hollow at the core emphasize external things. Jesus told his disciples not to make showy prayers in public, but to pray privately. And the tamion, which is T-A-M-E-I-O-N, which is translated room or closet. The word referred to a small room that was used for storage, such as for daytime storing of the mats used for bedding. Did the pagans really babble when they prayed? Indeed. Pagan prayers to their gods often piled up on lofty title after another. Almighty Zeus, judge of all things, guardian of the night, power behind the dreaded thunderbolt, and so forth. Apparently on the assumption that the god needed to be shamelessly flattered in order for the prayer to be heard. The textbook case of long and tedious pagan prayers is the confrontation of God's prophet Elijah with a horde of Baal prophets. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response, no answer. And that's First Kings, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 26. Jesus makes it clear that his Father already knows people's needs before they even ask, so the length or eloquence of a prayer is pointless. He understood that a person who had a way with words might focus more attention on the words than on God, might regard his well-made prayer as something that would earn God's approval. Instead of a heartfelt person-to-person communication, prayer could be more recital. The Jews did not babble like pagans, but they had their own empty forms. Pious Jews recited the Shema, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, early each morning and night, but as with any set ritual, by repetition in meaning could be lost. Some people would go into almost a trance-like state by repeating the Shema over and over. There were, in fact, set Jewish prayers for every occasion in life, perfectly good prayers in themselves, yet reciting them often degenerated into a stale and sterile formulation. The other side of the coin is that believers who scorn rituals and set prayers often take pleasure in lengthy, spontaneous prayers. Clearly a pastor, a layman, may savor the knowledge that his listeners approve his public prayers. Did you know that Luke's Gospel is sometimes called the Gospel of Prayer? because it mentions prayer more than the other Gospels a total of 25 times. 
It is the only gospel to mention that Jesus was praying when the Spirit descended on him at his baptism. A better way to pray. And then it is, this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 through 13. Having presented the wrong way to pray, the way of the hypocrites and pagans, Jesus presents a model prayer, a passage that was probably been the most repeated prayer and scripture ever. The brief but intimate name Father is striking contrast to the verbiage address of many Jewish prayers such as Lord God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, Shield of our fathers. Jesus would have agreed that all these titles and many more would have applied to God, but for him Father was enough, and if the Father was listening to his child, heaping up titles was not important. Having repeated the Lord's Prayer for centuries, we take addressing God as Father for granted. But it was certainly not familiar to Jesus' listeners. For them, our Father was a radical form of address. The Pharisees, the Jews, who had such a reputation for piety, had an awe of the divine name that they spoke of God as creator of the world, merciful one, divine presence, spirit, of holiness, etc. Titles that showed great respect but no sense of relationship. And in fact there are only three references in the Old Testament to our Father. So the Lord's Prayer broke new ground in spiritual intimacy. God is Father through the supreme authority figure. Calling God our Father separate, separates us from most religions that have ever existed on earth. For most of them see the gods or the high god as something not lovable at all. Pagans did not see Zeus or Bel as their father in any real sense, certainly not a father whose love was even close to that of a human father. In calling God Father, Jesus was not speaking of or to some lament cream puff who allows his children to behave like spoiled brats. A godfather lays down rules and enforces them and ultimately generates more respect than the cream puff. Remember this, that in ancient time fathers demanded and got a great deal of respect. Jesus' listeners would have been horrified at the way today's fathers are depicted in movies and TV stations as bumbling fools. Calling God our Father means we acknowledge we are children. Children do not get everything they ask for because a father knows that a child cannot and should not be given everything at once. 
the father gives the child what it needs. Interestingly, in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer begins not with our Father, but simply Father. That is, the disciple can address God with the same intimacy as Jesus himself does. But if there is a love and intimacy, there is an awe and reverence also. The Father is in heaven. God is our Father. But he is still God. Above us, greater as as greater than us, holier than us, mightier than us. Our Father and in heaven are in balance as love and power are in balance. God is the loving Father, yet he is still the almighty maker of heaven and earth. In our day of such close, maybe too close familiarity with parents and children, we are wrong to think of God as someone with whom we would play a round of golf. He is still, despite his love, up there spiritually. At times, we may need to reread Isaac 6, which is overpowering vision of God in the temple, a vision that led Isaac to cry out, Woe is me! A God who is not hallowed is not really God. Hallowed translates hagos, H-A-G-I-O-S, usually rendered as holy, but it could also be separate or distinct. God is different from everything and everyone else, and so his name is Hagos. For the Jews, the name was revealing of the character to hollow God's name is to give the dip, deepest respect to his unique character, hallowing God's name, reverencing his holiness, as in the prayer imposes a duty on us, the desire to clean ourselves up, to be in God's presence. To hollow the pagan gods was difficult for a moral, any moral person. The pagan philosophers like Plato and Aristotle were embarrassed by the myths of the lustful, violent, temperamental, vengeance, vengeful gods. The poets and dramatics often tried to depict the gods in a favorable light. But most people thought of the gods as they were in the myth, rich and attractive people who could become nasty and petty at a moment's notice and needed to be appeased. True love and a devotion for such gods was impossible for any spiritually sensitive soul. No wonder so many pagans were attracted to Judaism and its righteous God, and no wonder so many of them converted to Christianity when it began to spread. Your kingdom come, your will be done, are in fact an example of a parallelism. The second clause has the same meaning as the first. The Lord's Prayer thus provides us with a concise and memorable definition of what the kingdom of God is. God's will is done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Being in the kingdom means being in harmony with God's will. For believers, it is a present reality, but they pray for its future coming, a time when all men love and obey God. To pray the Lord's Prayer is to pray that the kingdom be consumed, beginning with the one who is praying. Your will be done can be spoken with a sigh of resignation or the snarl of resentment. But it is best said with a willing smile, acknowledging that God's wisdom is greater than ours. If we truly believe that Father knows best, we ought to be glad to put our lives in his hands, relieved to be relying on someone wiser than ourselves. The Old and New Testament both emphasize over and over again that true prayer and true spirituality lie in submitting the human to the divine will and not the reverse. Give us our daily bread has had many fanciful interpretations, but probably the most literal is correct. Give us what we need today. We can spiritualize the words and recall that Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life, but the simple fact is that our physical needs do matter, as seen by Jesus feeding the 5,000 and by the many healings he performed. Referring, referring to daily is a reminder to limit our view, not to agonize over the future, robbing the present of its pleasures. Did you know that the phrase kingdom come often used to mean heaven or the next world is from the Lord's Prayer? And that's in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus, Jewish listeners, would have certainly recalled the miraculous manna in the wilderness. And that's Exodus chapter 16 verse 1 through 21. With the Lord providing the people with daily rations, they would gather into baskets. Leftovers rotted so the Israelites grew to rely on what was given that day and no more. Storing manna and using it in the coming days might have led the people to forget that it was God's provision. The prayer reminds us that our food comes from God, not from the store not from our own gardens, but ultimately from God. We cannot sustain ourselves. Our daily bread echoes the wisdom of Proverbs 30, chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? or I may become poor and steal, and so disobedient, dishonor the name of God. Forgive us our debtors. Takes it for granted that all of us have sinned. The word Jesus used here is not hamari, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, the usual word for sin. 
It is O-P-H-E-L-E-M-A, Ophelium, meaning literally debts, things that are due. There are things we should have done that we failed to do. Somehow in the course of each day, we failed to give God to our neighbors what we owed them. Speaking of debts instead of sins reminds us that living the good life is not just a matter of creating to do bad things, but actively doing good things. Being forgiven by God for our failing is contingent upon our forgiving others. There is no way to sugarcoat this or to find loopholes. Millions of people around the world thoughtlessly rush through the words of the Lord's Prayer every day, not realizing that they have no no business asking God's forgiveness if they have not forgiven others. The Jews of Jesus' day thought that if they owed God in some way, they could pay the debt off by fasting and giving to the poor. Jesus made it more eternal than external. Forgive and be forgiven. Did you know visitors of the Jerusalem, visitors to Jerusalem, can go to Peter Neuster, and that's in O-S-T-U-R, church, Peter Neuster, being Latin for our Father. The church commemorates Jesus' teaching the Lord's Prayer to the disciples appropriately. The walls inside are decorated with the Lord's Prayer in dozens of languages. Deliver us from the evil one is probably more correct, although many translations still have from evil. Either way, we have the example of Jesus himself that Satan and temptation can be resisted. Having considered the meaning of the prayer, we have to ask an important question. Did Jesus intend for us to repeat this prayer word for word, or did he mean it was a sort of model prayer. Note that at the beginning by saying, this then is how you should pray. Also know that he taught the prayer after telling his listeners the wrong way to pray, to do it for show in public, to babble, and on and on like the pagans. By contrast, the Lord's Prayer is very short and direct. It seems fair to say that Jesus did not intend these exact words to simply be repeated by millions of people over the centuries. Rather, they are a framework for prayer, a template. There is nothing wrong with repeating the Lord's Prayer, of course, so long as our hearts are in harmony with the words. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, through, though you are evil, know how to give good, gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you, those who ask him? 
And that's Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 11. A key theme to this familiar passage is that God is a generous father. He is not like the gods of the pagans who were loth to answer prayers or who, when they did gave something, they proved to be more a curse than a blessing. The verbs used here are the imperfect tense. Literally, Jesus was saying, keep on asking, keep on knocking. We are not to give up easily in prayer. But do we get everything we ask for? Certainly not. Note that Jesus says that the Father will give good gifts to those who ask. Fortunately for us, his definition of good gifts is better than our own. Remember that Jesus had already given a, a guiding rule in prayer. Your will be done. In the eternal perspective, what we ask for, if it is in keeping with God's will, will be given. If not in his if not in this world, then in the next. Every prayer for healing will be answered eventually. Every prayer for release from worldly troubles will be answered eventually. Every prayer for peace and happiness will be answered eventually. The element every prayer for peace and happiness will be answered. The element of faith is of great importance when we ask, seek, knock. James whose letter reflects the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, wrote of God's generosity and also of the importance of faith. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of sea blown and tossed by the wind. And that's James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. And John reminded his readers of the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And that's First John 5, 14. The New Testament authors had grasped the meaning of ask, seek, knock, asking. Asking shows our trust in the loving God. The last verse in this passage disturbs many readers. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Did Jesus really believe human beings were evil. Critics of the Bible like to blame the Apostle Paul for the doctrine of humanity, entire moral ruin. But in fact, Paul had learned it from Christ. It forms the very basis of Christianity. It is the ultimate reason for the need for salvation for a Redeemer. Centuries early, the prophet Jeremiah said that the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And that will be found in chapter uh, 17, 9 of Jeremiah. So many of the Jews 
of Jesus' day thought they needed a Messiah to deliver Israel from its political enemies, but instead God gave them a much better Messiah, one who could deliver them from their own sins. The pesky and considerate friend. Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread, because he is his friend, Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And that's Luke chapter 11, verse 5 and 8. This parable, known as the friend at midnight, is interesting. Not only for what it tells us about prayer, but also what it reveals about the lifestyle of people of Jesus' day. People in that time and place sometimes traveled at night, as so to avoid the day's scorching heat. The customs of hospitality required the host to provide food, and if he had none, and no shops were open at so late an hour, the traveler might show up utterly famished. The loaves referred to here would not have been merely as large as the typical loaf of bread today. Each would have been about the size of a bun, used for hot dogs or sub-sandwiches. The friend wanted the three loaves for the surprise visitor. The typical house of that time did not have bedrooms per se, nor separate rooms for each family member to sleep in. The family members were probably sleeping on the floor on mats or on a raised platform in one of the rooms, so in bed did not refer to beds as we know them, for only the very well-off had actual beds. When the man says, my children are with me in bed, he means the entire family was bedded down for the night, and if he had got up to open the door, he would disturb the whole household. The late-night caller's boldness is what finally gets his friend out of bed. In fact, a better translation here would be shamelessness, this persisting to ask. The man making the request is indeed being an obnoxious pest. The poor man, awakened from a sound sleep, is not giving the loaves out of affection, but because the caller is a nuisance, he wants to be rid of him. The parable is really a rather humorous story, but we approach the Bible with such reverence that we often miss the humor in it. The point of the parable is the vast difference between our own goodness and God's. The friend yields finally, even grudgingly, to the man's persistence, but Jesus tells us God's generosity requires much less cogelling. Nor does God need to be awakened, since he already knows our needs. However, we are to be persistent in prayer, as the hungry traveler was persistent in his request, not giving up because the prayer was not answered right away or exactly to 
liking. One element of the story that is easy to overlook is that the caller's request is not unreasonable. He is trying to be a gracious host, providing food for someone who has arrived hungry after a long journey. His persistence, his boldness, or shamelessness in begging his friend for bread is not selfish at all. It is a prayer for daily bread, not for something unnecessary. The Pesky Plaintiff Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant to me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust says, and he will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out, to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that's Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. This is often called the parable of the unjust judge. The unjust judge in the parable would not have presided in a Jewish court, which required tribunals, which was three judges. So Jesus was picturing a magistrate appointed by Herod or the Romans, obviously someone the Jewish listeners would have expected to be unjust or corrupt. Anyway, the Jews referred to some of these as robber judges. Most of them would have been Jews since they were in higher Herod or the Romans and they would have been as much despised as tax collectors. Non-Jewish judges would have been equally detested. The assumption was that such a judge did not let fear of God's affect his decision, nor, as the parable says, fear of man, meaning public opinion. Neither feared God nor cared about men is a phrase often found in Jewish writings about pagan authority figures. But of course, there were plenty among the Jews who also did not fear God. A judge who did not fear God would have no regard for the law of Moses. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. And that's Exodus chapter 22, verse 22. Such unspiritual officials were frequently condemned by the Old Testament prophets. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless, the widow's case, 
does not come before them. And that's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. The plaintiff is the ultimate in victimhood, a poor widow. The fact that the widow had to press her own case tells us that she has no son or son-in-law to come to her aid. Thus, she is someone the judge can ignore with impunity. With no husband or other man to stand up for her, she had to rely on her own persistence. Note that this is a civil case where she is seeking for justice, not punishment, of a criminal. Judges often expect bribes, and the poor widow was unable to bribe him, so she hoped to wear him down with her persistence. While the text asks the judge fears she will wear me out or exhaust me with her continued complaining, the word actually means bruise or beat, as if he fears the exasperated woman will physically assault him. More likely, her ceaseless whining and worse than any physical assault. We aren't told why the judge had been unwilling to take her case, nor is the reason important. He knew he could ignore her and get away with it, and so he did. It was not any sense of justice or charity that changed him, but the simply fact that she became a nuisance. What the widow asked for is the key to the parable. She wants justice. Her request is not unreasonable. She is asking the judge to do what he is paid to do. In a sense, the widow represents all of us. For at some time, each of us feels ignored or badly treated by the system. And for most people, the system seems to work not for us, but against us. Anyone who has been involved with any criminal court or civil court cause knows how difficult it is to find real justice. No wonder the Bible so many times expresses the hope that the divine judge is fairer than the human judges, that he won't ignore the little people, that he won't be bribed or swayed, he would avenge blood, remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. And that's Psalms, chapter 9, verse 12. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. And that's Psalms 146. Um verse 9. Like the parable of the friend at midnight, the parable of the unique judge is mildly humorous. With the judge finally being worn down by the spunky but obnoxious widow. But the parable is also dead serious. It is about trusting in God to finally set all things right, to listen to the plea of all those who have been treated shabbily in the world where real justice is hard to come by. Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. The always in the parable doesn't mean around the clock, but in all circumstances, even in the most adverse. 
when we are tempted to give up hope. When the prayer is not answered, we should continue to pray. This is the perfect parable for a society where delayed gratification is a lost concept. We pray for justice and do not get it. But instead of giving up in despair, we should continue confident that God will answer in his own time, if not our own. At the end of the parable, Jesus asked, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He is referring to the kind of faith that shows itself persistent prayer and prayer of people who trust in a loving God who will in time set things right. Well, a cultural insight here, uh, prayer posture. We tend to assume that kneeling is the normal posture for prayer, but was that so in the Bible? Sometimes, but not always. Kneeling was the posture of pleading, also the posture of inferior asking something from a superior. And the Gospels record at least one occasion when Jesus knelt to pray. And that's Luke chapter 22, verse 41. People in the Bible prayed while standing. That's Jeremiah chapter 18, 20. Sitting, 2 Samuel 7, 18. Even lying face down. And that's Matthew chapter 26, 39. In the New Testament period, Jews generally played, prayed while standing. People sometimes prayed with hands lifted up. And that's verse King. Uh, chapter 8, verse 22, and First Timothy, chapter 2, 8. Praying aloud was normal. Jesus says reading was always done aloud. People in ancient times did not seem to think words were really alive unless spoken. People prayed alone and in groups in open fields. Genesis, chapter 24, verse 11 and 12. In the temple, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. By the riverside, Acts chapter 16, verse 13. On a seashore, Acts chapter 21, verse 5. In bed, Psalms chapter 63, verse 6. Even in the battlefield, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5. Interestingly, only twice does the Bible mention bowing the head in worship, and that's Second Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 30, and Isaiah, chapter 58, 5. And on these two occasions, we aren't sure prayer was involved. Not once does the Bible mention closing the eyes while praying, nor does it mention placing the hands together. God it seems, was not fussy about the posture of the person praying or where the person happened to be, as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector shows. The person's spiritual posture was more important. Approaching God humbly and reverently was what mattered. Although some believers subscribe to a form of 
predestination, and the Bible does speak of things being determined by God before a person's birth, there is not a hint in the Bible that our prayers were wasted. For God does answer prayer and intervene in our lives when he chooses. As the Bible presents human life, the script is not already written. Life is an ongoing work of art, with God as the great artist, and each human being making some contribution to the whole picture. It was Christianity that did away with the common pagan idea of destiny and faith. Live on stage, the amazing holy man. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Or that's Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. This parable is connected to the previous one, the widow, the unjust judge, by the theme of prayer. Here, however, the theme is not persistence in prayer, but attitude. In order to fully appreciate this parable, we have to understand how it would have sounded to Jesus' original listeners. The Jews of his day respected the Pharisees and detested the tax collectors. When Jesus began the parable of referring to a Pharisee and tax collector going into the temple, his listeners would have been ready to applaud the Pharisee and hiss the tax collector. The parable did not take that direction at all. The Pharisees were devout laymen among the Jews, those who took religion seriously. While many of them were generally good people, here and elsewhere in gospel, Jesus held them up as examples of smug self-righteousness. The Pharisee in the parable goes to the temple to thank God in theory, but in fact he has praised himself. He seems to be most thankful for sinners, since they make him look good by comparison. The Pharisee's very name, it meant separated one, comes through in his words. Pharisees look down on Gentiles, the common people, who were not wise enough to be devout and on sinners such as the tax collector. Jesus was not making a character of the Pharisee's prayer, for there were indeed prayers such as, Blessed are you, O Lord, or God, King of the world, that you have not made me a Gentile, a servant, or a woman. The Pharisee of the parable boasts of his twice-weekly fasts, 
Monday and Thursdays, typical of the more devout Jews. And of course, this ties. In effect, the prayer of the Pharisee is no prayer at all, since the man is just admiring himself in a mirror. It is notable that the Pharisee does not ask God for anything. He does not ask for daily bread or anything else. Spiritually, is a self-sufficient, or so he thinks. Or he thinks his behavior is so obviously deserving of reward that he is superfluous to ask for benefits. The Pharisee's prayer begins right. He thanks God, but then it goes amiss from that point on. He really does not look at God at all, but only at himself. He does not really need God because he does everything right by himself. In the religion of a self-righteous person, God serves no real purpose other than a smile and approve. God is not father, but chief admirer, the silent spectator who watches the Pharisee's parable or parade of his own virtues. Enter the second character, the tax collector, these were among the most despised people in that time, the place for they collected taxes for the Romans and for the Herod and were notoriously corrupt. They were seen as traitors to their nation and their faith. And when Jesus spoke of a tax collector going to the temple to pray, his listeners would have been shocked, the scum of the earth daring to enter God's holy temple. When he praised the tax collector like the Pharisee focused on himself, but on his sin, not on his merit. He does not compare himself to anyone, and in the spirit of true prayer speaks no one but himself and God. He will not look up to heaven when he prays, so conscious is he of his sins. The text actually has him referring to himself not as a sinner, but the sinner. He sees himself in the light of God. He knows that he needs God, for he needs mercy. He beats his breast a sign of sorrow and contrition. The Pharisee, unlike the tax collector, isn't setting himself up by God's standards, but by comparing himself to others, including the tax collector. He is one of the most common sins among people, especially among those who consider themselves religious. We can always think of people worse than ourselves, and using them as a yardstick, we come off looking very good. The tax collector compares himself to no one. He speaks to God, of the only human soul he really sees clearly as his own. Though the villain of this story is the Pharisee, Luke makes it clear that Jesus directed the parable at all who were confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. A much larger group than the Pharisees of the first century, Palestine. Most people tend, alas, to behave more like the Pharisees than the tax collector. We often pat ourselves on the back after comparing ourselves to some really bad person and it's always easy to find one given the constant bombardment of news with some nasty persons 
doing horrible things or getting caught in some scandal. Following the Pharisee pattern, we respond by saying, Well, I've got my faults, but I'm darn sight better than that rogue. But a better response would be, There, but for the grace of God, go I. The true saints don't seem to obsess with self-congratulation, but with awareness of their own failings. A spiritual giant like Paul could occasionally cry out, What a wretched man I am! And that's Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Leading not to despair, but as with the tax collector in the temple to throwing himself on the mercy of God. Paul, who in his early life had been a self-righteous Pharisee, like the one in the parable, encountered Christ and learned the lesson of humility. The customary ending. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. And that's John chapter 14, 14. Habit is a powerful thing, and for centuries Christians have ended their prayers with, In Jesus' name, Amen. The custom of a course based on this and similar passages in the Gospel. As with all customs, people really stop to analyze it any more than they analyze Amen. Jesus did not intend in Jesus' name to be something meaningless or magical formula to ask in Jesus' name is to ask in his spirit, to ask what we know would be his will in the circumstance. When we pray in his name, we ought to pray as if we were standing out a letter in the boss's name, signing his name to it. aware that we shouldn't misrepresent him. Another way of looking at it is that we are to pray for what we think Jesus himself would approve of. Praying that you will be healed of diseases. Yes, that is a prayer Jesus would approve of. Praying that you, you will win the lottery. Probably not. Jesus is not telling the disciples that they could get whatever they desire simply by using the formula in Jesus' name. Asking in Jesus' name assumes we love him, and he makes it clear that there is no love of the divine without obedience, without the willingness to say in the Lord's Prayer, Your will be done. Well, Putting the word to work. Reflect on Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 and 8, passage at the beginning of the chapter. Ask yourself if your own habits of praying are ever done for show. The Lord's Prayer has forgiving the debtors of others as we ask God to forgive our debts. The idea is that there is a good we might have done, but left undone. The next time you pray, focus not just on any harmful thing you might have done or said, but on any opportunities to do good that you let slip by. Reflect on the Ask, Seek, Knock passage. Have there 
been times in your life when you earnestly desired something but gave up praying for it? And Jesus spoke of a God as a loving Father who would not withhold any good gift from his children. Think of your own parents and consider times when they wisely overruled your wants and gave you good gifts that were better for you. And the next time you pray, pause to reflect on the real meaning of in Jesus' name. Is your prayer one that genuinely reflects all that Jesus represented in his life and words? Are you asking for things that if Jesus were physically present, you would be ashamed to ask for? Well, uh, gosh, <laughs> I, I, that was your father knows what you need. Uh, there was a cultural insight uh, that I'll, I'll share with you here briefly. Um, a house of prayer in Jerusalem temple was primarily a place for offering sacrifices to the Lord. But as we see in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it was also a place for prayer. One could go to pray there any time, but two particular periods were reserved for prayer. The third hour, which was 9 a.m., the ninth hour, 3 a.m., or p.m. The Jews believed that God was, of course, everywhere, and so the prayers could be said everywhere. But they also saw the temple as a kind of house for God, representing his presence among the people. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed, May your eyes be upon toward the temple, the temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. And that's First King chapter 8, verse 29. God answered Solomon by saying, My eyes and my heart will always be there. And that's First King 9, 9. When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple courts, he quoted Isaiah chapter 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus seemed to see the temple more as a place of prayer than of sacrifice. Luke chapter 2, 37 tells of the devout woman, Anna, who never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. In Acts, Jesus' apostles are shown going to the temple to pray. Chapter 3, verse 1. Prayer in the temple came to an end when the Romans destroyed it in A.D. 70. Yet even today, devout Jews still pray by the Wailing Wall, which is all that remains of the temple complex. Heavenly Father, I do give thanks. I thank you, dear Lord, for this reading. And, and Lord, uh, I just pray that our prayers are heard, that we humbly come before you in heart and mind when we open our mouth to ask for a blessing or for a deliverance or for anything of that nature. But let your will be done is important 
that we must understand that your will in our lives must be done. So I pray, Heavenly Father, as I, as I do this program that I love to do, that it be your will, Heavenly Father, that those that listen will be touched by your words, by the reading of the words that have meaning to them, either to bring them closer to you or to invite them to get to know you. Lord, I humbly pray that you just continue to be with me as I go through this day. And I just thank you for all that you do and all your blessings. And I humbly pray in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, wow. I I did a... I, I, we went through this whole... Um, it's kind of befitting, I guess, in a way. Yesterday was Father's Day. I pray that uh, you fathers had a good day. And let's take heed of our Heavenly Father in our actions toward our children as fathers today. Well, uh, like I said, first day of summer, so enjoy this work week. Be careful. Make sure that you drink plenty of fluid, fluid, and uh, we will see you on our next uh, program. Have a blessed. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.